technology is an integral part of what it means to be human. And throughout human history, we've seen how technology has improved people's lives. And that's what really gets me out of bed each morning, uh, talking about these topics and reading and learning as much as I can, because there is a positive story to be told here about technology innovation that is frankly under addressed. That is Taylor Barkley, and I'm Dwayne Lester. This is Top Priority. Once again, to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy, I'm Dwayne Lester. You know, one thing I want to start with is we take a lot of pride in sound quality on this podcast. We've invested in making sure that our sound is the best, and that's why I was a little bit frustrated when I listened to this podcast because I had all the tech set up. I had everyone sitting in front of the proper mics, we had our headphones on, and I started recording and didn't realize until I listened to it later that we were actually recording this podcast on the laptop microphone, not the microphones that we invested in for this podcast. And the reason it frustrated me is because this is one of my favorite conversations that I've had when recording this podcast, this discussion with Taylor Barkley about technophobia, about this this fear that people have towards change whenever something is introduced how there's there's a an, almost an irrational fear and that innovation more often than not increases our standard of living and we talk about that for a good hour i believe on this podcast it's a great conversation the audio is not as good as what you're hearing right now but it isn't unlistenable So I encourage you, stick around, listen to the whole podcast, and I think you'll you'll enjoy it. Anyway, here it is. Thanks to Taylor for doing this, and I I hope you uh, enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. So Taylor, what I want to do before we get into talking about technology and innovation and the cultural fears that people have about that is I want to get to know a little bit more about you. So... You know, what's your background, man? How are you? Why are you so passionate about this stuff? Yeah, so uh, I am a California native, went to college in Indiana. So some strong Midwestern uh, ties. Was you, just in, you, in Indiana this weekend, actually. Do you say Ope a lot like the Midwesterners do? I don't. I'm not that that strong yet. You know, I'm a, I'm a transplant of sorts. I'll work on you. <laughs> <laughs> I find myself doing that. So go ahead. And I've lived here in D.C. since 2011. Uh, my wife and son and I live on Capitol Hill. And uh, I was a participant in the Coke internship program in 2008. Uh, there were about 10 of us in the program at the time, so much smaller than it is today from what I understand. And then in uh, 2011 and 12, I was in the Coke associate program where I actually met my wife, uh, Rachel. We were both participants in the program. I worked at the Mercatus Center for about six years. And there I spent about four and a half of those years as the uh, assistant director of outreach for technology policy, working with folks like Adam Thierer, Jerry Brito, Eli Dorado, and Brent Skorup, and distributing their research to different audiences, mainly policymakers at the federal level and also external audiences. And and it was in that context that I really uh, developed my passion and interest in technology policy as an issue set. 
Uh, most of what I've learned is from Adam Thier, Jerry Brito, Eli, and Brent, and uh, those folks. And uh, in that capacity, I, just, I really I saw the potential uh, in this issue set. It was uh, fairly nascent as a policy issue area. You know, the internet uh, developed as the ARPANET, as a defense research project. And in the early days, uh, commercial and private use of internet services was forbidden. There's a manual from the 80s at MIT uh, explaining to researchers how they shouldn't use the, the uh, ARPANET and it forbade uh, private use and commercial use. And can you imagine now what uh, the world would look like if those rules had stayed in place? And so when it kind of got out into the wild, it was fairly unregulated. Uh, it was uh, green fields of opportunity for entrepreneurs, innovators, developers to basically pursue their dreams and develop products that could help other people. And so that really was a captivating story to me. And the deeper I got into it, the more I saw how technology and innovation is woven into the human story. It, it, as humans, we make technology from day one. You know, we were developing language. If you take the broadest definition of technology as the application of knowledge to solve specific problems, language is a technology. Uh, systems of government or technologies, uh, you know, we think about maybe the, the tools as a technology, of course, farming implements, weapons, um, and, you know, this technology is an integral part of what it means to be human. And throughout human history, we've seen how technology has improved people's lives. And that's what really gets me out of bed each morning, uh, talking about these topics and reading and learning as much as I can because there is a positive story to be told here about technology innovation that is frankly under addressed. It's really what it comes down to though, is no, I remember in our first podcast, one of the things that uh, Billy easily said is technology makes people's lives better. Yes, I totally agree. And that is our, our vision for the technology innovation priority initiative. Uh, we focus on three buckets of issues and Billy may have talked about those. Um, but fundamentally, we believe that technology innovation have been a force for good throughout human history. And in order for those benefits to continue, we need a policy framework friendly to innovation and a cultural framework friendly to innovation. And that's why I'm excited to dive into that cultural component here, because as a group of organizations and for myself coming from think tank land, focusing on policy issue areas, it's fairly easy to view the ecosystem and kind of the structure of social change in that context of, you know, advocating or recommending good policy frameworks, seeing those implemented either to uh, provide good rules of the road for how certain product or service should be implemented, or in some cases, rolling back regulations or laws that would restrict the implementation or use of beneficial technologies. You know, for example, the use of uh, commercial drones right now. Uh, drones came about before the FAA really had a set of guidelines on how to use them. Um, and after they came up with the guidelines, they said uh, flying beyond line of sight. So if I can't see the drone I'm flying, I can't use it um, to deliver maybe goods or services. And um, you have examples in Africa of using drones beyond line of sight to deliver medical supplies, um, you know, last minute, uh, supplies of, say, uh, for blood transfusions or medicine that's needed that can't be delivered because of rough roads or it would take much longer to deliver via vehicle. And we can't have that right now in the U.S. because of the way the regulations are written. So, you know, focusing on those 
technologies born in captivity, so to speak, and lowering the barriers to entry for innovators and inventors to improve people's lives. That's really what that's about. I like the idea of diving into these cultural fears. So let's, let's, let's focus there for a second. And uh, well, let's focus on that for the rest of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, um, what are some of the, one of the, some of the things you're looking at when I think about uh, the first, the network vision, we exist to break barriers. Yes. What barriers are these cultural fears creating? And, and if you want to talk first about the, you know, what you mean by cultural fears and then talk about the barriers they create. Yeah. So this is a tricky, somewhat tricky, squishy issue set. Um, and it, for that reason, I think uh, scholars uh, like Art Diamond, who wrote a great book that came out last year called Openness to Creative Destruction. He, I just got that book. Oh, you did? I well, did. you should read yeah, it. I, I heard, well, I'm, I'm going to, uh, it, because it was expensive. And <laughs> but uh, yeah, I heard him on a podcast. I, I don't remember who okay. it was. It may have been Econ Talk. Possibly. Uh, it may have been something he else. He's an economist. I, I just remember reading it or hearing it and saying, okay, I've got to get this book. Well, it's a wonderful book. And he talks about uh, you know, cultural reactions and cultural attitudes toward it, and it, towards innovation are a key component towards the adoption of new technologies. So, you know, as an example, I kind of describe this issue set as the Atlantic Magazine cover story set of issues. You know, maybe you've seen Atlantic Magazine or online articles from the Atlantic talk about questions or is social media destroying democracy or smartphones making us dumber? Is Google making us stupider? Um, you know, fears around maybe new medical technologies and kind of moral issues come into play about gene editing or uh, topics like automation and are robots going to take jobs and displace workers? All, these are all topics that somehow affect uh, spiritual, psychological, emotional, or vocational, kind of the day-to-day well-being components of our lives. And st- when we separate that out from like a policy question that has to do with a legal or regulatory framework or communicating directly with policymakers, there's certainly an interplay that scholars have talked about for you know dozens, if not hundreds of years between how does culture feed into politics and vice versa. And uh, we're not here to get at that question. Instead, we're here to really dive deep into uh, how can we have a society that is friendly and open towards innovation? Because if we don't have a society that's friendly and open towards innovation, we're going to see some drop in these beneficial uh, technologies and services that, you know, uh, Art Diamond in his book talks about scholars who've looked into different uh, throughout history, how different kingdoms and societies and cultures have reacted to, to new technologies and um, you know Europe and the Industrial Revolution is one example um, and China in the 1200s, 1400s, 1600s is another example where in, in China they once they got the canon from the Europeans uh, they didn't iterate on the design it stayed the same for 200 years and they kept it really well maintained but there wasn't this system of iteration and improvement. Whereas in Europe, if, you know, say we're two warring nations, I use a cannon on you that's better than yours. You're going to say, how do we get that and improve our own technology? And there's this back and forth play. And, you know, it's, it's a tricky, I will caveat all this by saying commentary on like why culture does something such thing or another is, is hotly debated and um, contentious, but diamonds were kind of, kind of raises the, this point shines a light on, okay, why did China do this and how did it influence their 
overall well-being and economy as a nation as compared to the European model of openness and integration and iteration on new technologies. And there was a, you know, more recently, a recent example on why this issue is important. Uh, there was a New York Times story about Ivy League campuses and students who are in computer science programs not wanting to take jobs at big tech firms because they viewed there was a moral component. Oftentimes it was around, say, Palantir helping, providing services to Departmental, Department of Homeland Security and immigration issues. But sometimes it was just on this conception that, you know, Facebook was stealing our data or violating our privacy instead of viewing it correctly as a voluntary agreement. Sure, I think Facebook has had instances of dropping the ball on many other tech companies. They do make mistakes. Um, but there is this overwhelming uh, view that it came through in this piece that students are making the decision to not be involved in these companies and services because of a cultural perspective and the society, societal perspective that they're being educated in at these schools. So I saw that as a, an example of why this issue is important. Um, you know, there's a discussion too in Diamond's book, to reference it again, uh, it's a great book. He talks about the link between inventors and inspiration of science fiction stories, or even just learning about history, you know, being inspired by a, you know, the famous examples like Thomas Edison or um, Jonas Salk, the inventor of the polio vaccine, looking at those stories and being inspired to go out and create something on our own or on their own as the future inventor. And I, I'm excited to work on this project because I want to do all I can to stack the, stack the deck in favor of more innovation, more new services that help improve people's lives. And I think having this positive narrative and assuaging fears and you know, we can talk later about um, context. Now, context is so important in discussion of these topics. So, um, I don't. I want to see a, a culture where uh, young people, even you know, older people, are excited to invent and to create, instead of saying, "Well, if I'm involved in technology, it's probably a, a bad thing, and I should feel guilty about that." So, I'm just going to spend my time doing something else, and I think that's a detriment. What was the name of that book again? Openness to Creative Destruction. And you'll be able to find that uh, link in the show notes under additional resources. We'll, we'll have it there if you want to order your own copy um, after you finish listening to this, of course. So I, I think uh, I, I think context. I like what you said there because technology is one of those issues that, as I've, as I've been around the country training on trade, for example, mm -hmm. uh, we, we constantly talk about the fact that jobs have disappeared. Manufacturing jobs have disappeared yeah. from the United States. And it's not it's not untrue. Correct. The, the, but the fact of the matter is, the, the narrative that is out there is all these jobs have gone to China. And that's mm -hmm. not the fact of it either. Correct. We've seen manufacturing decline, you know, employment decline since 1979. But the majority of that is due to technology and innovation mm -hmm. and the creation of these these automations that have you know have made these jobs unnecessary mm -hmm. and we see these jobs disappear and the idea is this is a net negative mm -hmm. what would you say to someone who says that that we need those jobs the well, things have certainly changed that's that's undeniable and i think that comes through in um, the historical record but what you also see is throughout you know, pretty much every metric, an improvement in, in life and in lifestyle and the quality of life. Uh, 
you know, mortality is down for, you know, most people. Uh, child mortality, a very important metric to uh, technological progress. That's way down as well. Uh, I think, you know, I have a young son who's nine months old, and I think if I lived 200 years ago, I probably would have lost uh, one or two children already just in early days from disease and um, malnourishment. But because of technology innovation, I am not nearly as worried about that issue now as opposed to my ancestors 200 years ago even. That, that, I mean, that story is the, that's the human default. If you look at the scope of human history, it's, it's one of illness and frequent death and constantly wondering, where's my next meal gonna come from? Because it's dependent on the weather and things I can't control. But because of technology innovation, especially in the agricultural space, you know, for example, uh, dealing with um, jobs and quality of life, you know, we can talk about both of those things in the context of agriculture. Uh, in American history, for early American history, most jobs were farming. Uh, most jobs uh, were in agriculture, over 50% up until the late 1800s. And now it's somewhere around 2% or 3%. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, in a, so just think, and now we have more food than we did then and more people. We're feeding more people, have more surplus with drastically fewer people involved because of technology innovation. And, you know, another thing that we see when uh, things change because of the impact of technology is new product lines, new jobs, new labor descriptions, you know, the Department of Labor's job classifiers, uh, they're always having to update it because new jobs are coming online. If, you know, 20 years ago, an app developer would have been a meaningless job description. Now it's uh, a job for, you know, thousands of people all over the world. Um, and I think, you know, there's, so it's like, let's deal with the, the change and change can be difficult for some people. And I want to meet, I think as an organization, as a community, we should be having honest conversations about the emotional impact of, you know, if a factory closes in my town and my family has worked there for generations, let's talk about like, how does that impact that person's life and how can we help them make a transition and, you know, treat them as fully human and dignify them. Um, but we can also tell the story of the, the macro story, if you will, of human history that this has been a, a net positive uh, for humanity uh, since day one. And, you know, I, I was really struck by a story I heard um, a couple years ago. So the, the Drone Racing League, I don't know if you've come across. I've seen it, yeah. All right, good. It's, it's really exciting, fast-paced. Uh, so the Drone Racing League has a virtual course on their website that anyone can participate in anywhere in the world. And this is actually how they find new racers. And so they told a story about a, a boy in Pakistan who put a good enough number on the board, you know, who in the Drone Racing League sponsored, brought out, he had his own, got his own sponsors because he was able to essentially play a computer game really, really well and prove his skill set. This was the plot of The Last Starfighter. You know that, right? I do not know that, no. You've never seen The Last Starfighter? I don't think I've ever heard of it. Oh, okay, we're going to pause the podcast just for this next Roll hour and a half. Yeah. We're going to go watch The Last Starfighter. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I need to watch it. Well, it, it was fantastic. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good news story. Whereas, you know, this, you know, 20 years ago, this would have been a, a fictional story of yeah. The Last Starfighter. Now it's a real life story of uh, this boy. I don't know all the particulars of his life, um, but he certainly has access to a different job than he would have before the internet and you know high speed bandwidth um 
so you know the, the short of it is yeah there is change uh the arc of it is good and we need as a community i think need to address those those pain points for and, people and there are pain points correct we, yes we don't want to ever no give this impression no. and a lot of what you said is actually what i talk about when we do trade and mm. it goes back to a few a few ideas that I want to emphasize, I bring it up in a lot of the trainings that I do, uh, but there's a quote from Thomas Sowell. And Thomas Sowell says, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Mm. Yeah. And that goes yeah. with, with what we're talking about today. There are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. So anything we put in place is going to have positive and negative repercussions. Yeah. There's another quote from Thomas Jefferson that I like to use that goes along with what Sol said. Is he, and to paraphrase, because I don't remember it exactly, but he said, I'd rather deal with the inconveniences associated mm. with too much liberty than those associated with too little. Yeah. And again, going back to yeah. the idea yeah. that there are no trade, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. There's going to be good and bad. And the third one I, I want to bring up that I think relates to what you've said is Basia's, there are things which are seen and there are mm -hmm. things which are unseen. Correct. And to go back to to the idea of, of the farmer, you know, in the 1800s leading up to the 1920s, there were a lot of farmhands who were hurting. Yeah. They had lost their jobs. They, they no longer had employment. As, as agriculture moved, moved from one of labor intensive to machinery intensive, yes. would we go back then and, and say to those folks, look, we know you just lost your job. We know life is tough for you right now. We will be happy to put regulations and laws in place that remove machinery mm. from, from the workplace and you can keep your job. Right. But we want to show you the life your children would have. Mm. Yeah. And ask, an which, would you, which would you prefer? Yeah. Would you prefer that your children have an easier life or that you have your job? Right. And those are the trade-offs that technology creates. We might not see, we might not know, but we know that when we allow creative destruction, spontaneous order, the principles that MBM and the principles that the framework, or the, the framework, I just dated myself there, I, uh, that the, the vision are founded on, when we allow those to happen, we see life get better and better and better. And I, I don't want to skip ahead to self-actualization, but it is a key to self-actualization. Yeah. yeah, well, I was going to you know, read from the, the third full sentence of the vision. You know, History demonstrates people, people are capable of extraordinary things when they have the opportunity to learn, contribute, and succeed. And that history demonstrates is this context component we're talking about here, whether it's trade or technology innovation. And I'm glad to see that in our vision because it, you know, when we talk about tech innovation, the other component about context I want to address is historical context of just reactions to new technologies. Cultural fears about new technologies have been around since technology has been around. And we, uh, the community, we sponsor a podcast and Twitter project called Pessimists Archive. And these are two guys who go through newspaper archives and look at pessimistic reactions to old to technologies that we have now that we take for granted so like the automobile the umbrella bicycle the novel and for all those examples even the mirror there are the teddy bear that's a great episode that they have teddy bear there are negative reactions to the teddy bear because people thought the teddy bear would supplant for young girls this uh, motherly instinct all of a sudden they have an attachment to an animal instead of a human being. They should be playing with human dolls instead of these bears and distorting their minds. I would have thought that in the zoo they would have gone after the bear and think it was cuddly and, and 
my mind went to a more violent place. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, they, certainly that could be a reaction. And instead, it's, you know, now I didn't hesitate to give my young son a teddy bear, whereas uh, there were people, um, this panic, this moral panic around teddy bears. And it's, I would highly recommend listening to the podcast, following the Twitter account, just to get this context for panics and these cultural reactions throughout history to technologies that we take for granted today. The novel is another thing that they talk about. The novel was an innovative idea that came around in the late 1700s. So fiction books weren't really a thing until printing became cheap enough um, and you know, people had more time because of technology innovation to devote to writing fictional stories. So the 1780s and turn of the 1800s, the novel was a new technology and there were these reactions against it that remind me of similar discussions we have today. You know, one of them being the novel causes violence among young men. You know, where have I heard that before in right. current context? You know, video games, namely. People thought that young men were spending too much time in these fanciful uh, stories about, you know, detectives or knights or crime fighters, and this would cause them to go out in the streets and, you know, practice their punching. And it changed society, the novel did, you know, it brought creative ideas and different ways to talk about hot topics, um, but it didn't end society by any means. Uh, I was just listening to the first episode of the Pessimist Archive, actually, about the Walkman. Uh, there was, in New Jersey, I think it was Worcester, New Jersey, you know, Woodbridge, New Jersey, in 1982, promulgated rules that banned the Walkman in the city. So you would get up to 15 days in jail if you were caught on the streets with <laughs> headphones on your head. Oh, wow. Because there was this reaction to the Walkman. It's distracting people. You know, people aren't paying attention to what's around them. And uh, they're losing you know, skills of conversation. And we hear a very similar discussion about smartphone use today. And I think all these reactions, you know, with the Walkman, we, we made it through. Society changed. Now, all of a sudden, I can listen to my own music. I can carry things around. It influenced, you know, MP3 players. And now MP3 players are out because we have them and these devices that have 20 different utilities in one, namely the smartphone. And uh, it's, it's changed how we consume media. Here we are on a podcast. You know, imagine that 20 years ago. It was, it was something unheard of. So uh, these... Pessimist Archive does an excellent job of providing that historical context. You know, when we look at how we freaked out about things that we use every day today and we really take for granted, kind of can cool the temperature around these new technologies and at least pause as we take an assessment of new technology and say, hey, are we really freaking out about something that is just a change? And, you know, change for change's sake isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. And the, the other important context I've come become aware of lately is just even how we talk about our emotions around new technology, say the issue, issue of distraction or boredom or loneliness. These are emotions that 150 years ago weren't even topics of concern. Being lonely was not something that the common person was worried about because it was just a lot of life. I'm out there plowing my field. I'm not lonely. This is just how it is. Um, and loneliness was sort of this ennui of the upper upper classes, you know, leisure opportunity for leisure and then as we have more opportunity for leisure and uh just really our days were less consumed of like where do i get my next meal and how do i stay alive then loneliness became something that we started talking about it's almost as if there's i'm just gonna make this up as i'm thinking about it but almost a hierarchy of needs yeah it's i should probably copyright that but, <laughs> you know, as we as you're we, brilliant Dwayne. wow well that's not the first time 
uh, as we move up through this hierarchy of needs, you see different yeah. needs have basically different solutions. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing because as we move up, we're getting closer to that self-actualization we talked about earlier. Yes. Let's go back. Let's go back to the first one. Let's let's start with self-actualization. But equal rights. When you think about when you think about the cultural fears around technology and innovation, how does that impact equal rights? So I think having an inordinate fear of technology can then impact the implementation or adoption of the technology. And a lot of technology is centered around media technology, media, not just the news, but media as uh, transmission of ideas. So the book, the radio, um, certainly the book, you know, with the printing press in the 1400s and then proliferation of books in the 1500s, that brought enormous change. You saw the Protestant Reformation come about in 1517, largely around the cheap dissemination of books. And there, and it was an upending of all of a sudden, you know, it became this world where before for, you know, when you would write something down, it was expensive and it was hard to transport. So who gets those books then? It's, it's an elite, it's the scholars, it's the, the church, the authorities. And I think this goes to, you know, promoting equal rights because all of a sudden everyone can have access you know, and books were still more expensive than they are today. But I, you know, with media technologies, certainly the internet is, uh, I love the Mark Andreessen quote, um, who said a, a teenager in, I forget what country he is, but I will just use a, a refugee camp in Kenya has more access to uh, like how to advice on how to do a startup than I did at Stanford Business School when I was going through it because of you know, YouTube and Twitter and this X, all this, you know, if you have a 3G connection on a wireless you know, a smartphone, a wireless connection, you can have access to these, this information and it can elevate your opportunity and access to whether it's a good job or a different quality of life. And I think it's done a lot to, I think, demonstrate to everyone that we're all human beings in this together and we should be treated with, with equal rights. And I think it's bolstered what, you know, as we say in our vision, uh, what was articulated in the Declaration of Independence. When you think about, when I think about equal rights, of course, it goes back to those those uh, inal unalien unalienable rights. Easier said than done. Um, <laughs> and there, there's none more foundational than the right to life. They all go, yeah. back, go back to that. And you mentioned earlier the, the drones and the movement of, mm. of human blood mm -hmm. drones in Africa, which we can't do here. Yeah. And so there are people that maybe had they had the right, I, I don't, I don't have any specific news articles or anything, but you could imagine someone needing a specific blood type and that blood type not being able to get to where it needs to yeah. be in time because of burdensome, unnecessary regulations. Yeah. And that is denying a person's right to life yeah. out of some unnecessary regulation. Yeah. And that's the unseen you were talking about earlier, that uh, Bastiat talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's different because you know we can't cite something that we that didn't happen because it's a negative essentially. Um, it's very it's at least very difficult to find those stories. And Thomas Sowell talks about that in the role of the FDA and having this very precautionary approach and keeping our food and drug drugs safe, which is a good thing. But there's a trade-off in slower iterations, 
drugs and devices being brought to market more slowly. And we're seeing this talked about all over the place because of COVID-19. Uh, how quickly can we get new vaccines and new treatments to market? Um, there's that trade-off there. So I, I think you're absolutely right in nailing that down as an equal rights issue. And we see that that there are, when you bring up uh, healthcare, there are meds and treatments that are available all across Europe that aren't here in America because of some regulation somewhere. They're not killing anyone over yeah. there. Why can't we do this here? Because yeah. of some fear of, of uh, the unknown. I agree. I agree. Mutual mutual benefit. When you think about when you think about this, I I have some thoughts that come to mind, um, and they're silly. But I think they fit. Tell me if I'm wrong. All right. Mutual benefit. I used to play a game called Clash of Can Clash of Clans. Oh yeah, that's you, a fun one. Yeah, yeah I, I that too. And I, I played it a lot until I realized that there were a lot of people spending a lot of money to win this game. And <laughs> I just looked at it and said, I, I don't have the money to pay to play. Oh to, sure. To, to pay to win is yeah. basically what it is. Yeah. And so I stopped. I wasn't coerced into playing, but somewhere. Yeah. Somewhere there's someone out there spending tens of thousands of dollars yeah. to win this game. And yeah. they're fine with that. It yeah. benefits them. They're, they're entertained by it. Apparently, they have ridiculous amounts of this, you know, disposable income. But it's also benefiting the, the company that makes that. And it benefits the people who work on that. And it benefits the people who are creating more games who work for that. And the people who, right. I mean, it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. Right. There's got to be better examples of mutual benefit than Clash of Clans. What would? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I mean, you hit on a, a very common fear. I just saw this over on Friday. Uh, Maya McGinnis published an op-ed in the Atlantic about the addictive nature of digital technologies, and that you know what you decided there is often brought up. You know the the uh, the loot box issue in games, you know, if I pay, you know, $10 to Call of Duty or Clash of Clans, I'm going to get a bonus that will give me an edge of my competitors. People say that that is hijacking and manipulating people into doing something they would want, not want to do. I believe my senator, actually, Josh Hawley, yes. says that. Yes. And I think that goes back to what is your fundamental view of humanity? Are we a manipulable species uh, are human beings kind of hardwired and kind of blank slates to be manipulated at whatever whim of a company or government or are we and you know this is how i'd describe it is it the control view versus the empowerment view are we controlled by external forces and need to be rescued by external forces the government tech companies need to rewrite their algorithms or do we have an empowerment view where you, Dwayne, or the human beings around us can actually make choices on our own. Sometimes we're going to make bad choices. So I might not agree with the Clash of Clans player who's spending $100 to boost their stats. Maybe they don't either, but it's hard for me to make that judgment without knowing them personally, even getting inside their mind, frankly. Um, and I think we need to have a society, back to your Thomas Jefferson quote, that's open to People can make bad decisions. They can also learn from them. Lord knows I've done that in my own life. I've made bad decisions and I've learned from it and it wasn't the end of the world. And um, so that, that, you know, in your in your question there and your topic about you know, discussing mutual benefit, that's a very common cultural fear that comes up that I think is based on the wrong view of what it means to be a human being. So with mutual benefit, yeah, I, there's all sorts of, um, I think, you know, the Clash of Clans example is, is a good one. Yeah, it's providing jobs that didn't exist before. 
Um, you may disagree on whether those you know jobs are productive or not, but they're there. Um, you know, the internet and just this, this dispersion of opportunity that I've referenced earlier, whether you're a, a drone racer in Pakistan or a refugee in a camp in Kenya, there's green fields of opportunity to bring something new to market, to iterate an idea cheaply and quickly. Uh, I have friends who've produced apps that failed, but, you know, they learned something from it. Uh, it wasn't like you know, getting a loan, like coming up with a business plan, getting a loan, starting a physical store, and then hoping and working hard that it would succeed and meet a market need. It's much quicker to do those iterations. And, you know, sometimes things really hit it. Like Facebook was a product that there was obviously a need for. There are now 2 billion people on Facebook worldwide. And people like to denigrate it, but it serves this purpose of uh, kind of putting our social capital in a place that we can easily access and view. So, you know, my network of friends, I can get updates, I can post pictures and share things. You know, even this summer when my wife uh, was going through tremendous health difficulties because of a spinal cord tumor that was benign, um, we were able to share quickly and effectively with our group of friends. So when people talk about, oh, Facebook is, you know, surveillance capitalism and, you know, even the, we put this in the cultural fears category, you know, you're the product. I don't think that's entirely true because I'm getting a benefit from a Facebook or Google or any of these big tech companies that is a mutually beneficial agreement. I may not know all the, the, you know, the access that I'm granting in that user agreement. I can have access to it. I can certainly read it. It would take a while. Um, but I'm getting some sort of product and benefit from it. I, I don't want to, frankly, I don't want to pay like $25 a month for a Facebook service or whatever it would cost. There are email services out there you can pay on a yearly or monthly basis if you uh, don't want to use Gmail or another uh, non-priced service. Um, so in return for the social capital kind of indexer, I'll call Facebook, you know, they're getting information about me and then they can sell to advertisers. So there's that back and forth. Um, and I think I really like to push back on that notion that, you know, we're the product because we're getting, uh, we're exchanging, instead of me giving Facebook money, I'm giving them access essentially to mm -hmm. my interests or interactions. And that's something that they can use to sell to advertisers and return and prove a product that I use every day. One of the things I thought about while, while you were uh, talking about, I think it was uh, control versus empowerment. Yes, yes. Um, there's a common question that, that I'll ask. I have a blog post coming out about that actually. Outstanding. Yeah. If it's out, we'll put it in the show notes. Great, so. great. But there's a question that I commonly ask people, and I'll just say, do you think that we're too stupid to be free? I don't think so at all. No, I, I don't no. think so either. I think that, that with, with a certain amount of freedom, there are, uh, there are a certain level of inconveniences, as, as Jefferson mm -hmm. would say. Uh, if it's a, a, you know, a different issue, you might say there's a different level of tragedies or there's a different yeah. level of pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we aren't too stupid to be free. And that's what a lot of this comes down to is we have to put these regulations in place because people are too stupid to be free. And I, I don't believe that at all. Yeah. And people won't outright say that. No. Or but, very rarely will they. But when I come across those, you know, Senator Hawley's recommendation that YouTube be required to, you know, limit autoplay or ban the autoplay feature on a video or that uh, apps have a default setting of 30 minutes of use a day. That would have been a detriment this summer uh, to my wife and I when we were spending way more than 30 minutes a day on these apps connecting with our community who was helping us through a very difficult medical situation. And I think all those things bloom 
when we have this uh, world, uh, this empowerment perspective and a perspective of permissionless innovation, um, you know, no one, no one can divine the needs and attitudes in the future for every single individual. That's just something that's humanly impossible. What would you say? And if you don't have an answer right away, that's fine. Um, what would you say to the person who says, where's the mutual benefit in a person who loses their job to a machine? I think, again, it goes back to starting that conversation with really listening to where that person's coming from. You know, what, what are the negative effects they felt because of a job loss? Um, it can be, I don't want to be flippant in any of those situations. Um, and as a community coming around them to help them transition to whatever the next new thing is. And sometimes it can involve moving to a, a new location. Um, but yeah, you know, is there a mutual benefit in that particular circumstances? Maybe, <laughs> you know, it'd be hard for that person. Like if certainly if I were in their shoes, say I lost a job and they said, all right, we're going to place all of you workers like today, stand together with robots who are going to review grant proposals. Robot philosophers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would certainly feel like there there isn't mutual benefit in that circumstance, but I, I I would try to then say, all right, what can I do today to find the kind of do the next right thing, find the next fit for me, um, looking at my skill set, and I would I I know I have a community around me that would help me do that, but not everyone has those gifts and those those blessings, so um, I think we can do much better at meeting people where they're at in those moments of crises. And then also helping tell the story of that bigger context that I think does tell a story of kind of like net mutual benefit, if you will. It's also important to remember the, the fact that there are four key institutions. Mm -hmm. There isn't just one. Uh, and there's this, there's this overlying uh, uh, belief that I've, I've seen it in every everyone across the political political spectrum, except our anarchist friends. Hmm. And this philosophy is if government doesn't do it, it won't get done. Correct. Yeah. 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 That's pervasive attitude. It, it, it absolutely is. And I'm, I'm certain people lose their jobs all the time due to some new piece of technology, some new innovation. And it, it's, it's, it sucks. Let's it does. To yeah. be honest. It, does, it, yeah. it, it, it creates yeah. pain in their life. But what can the other institutions do that we're not doing? Yeah. And, yeah. and, We've seen throughout our society, Tocqueville talked about this, where, where you'd find governments in Europe and France taking care of things. We saw associations in, in America do these things. He mm -hmm. talked about that in Democracy in America. We, as we've seen more and more regulations and greater government involvement in handling that pain, we've seen a decrease in the strength of the other key institutions, specifically community. And it, you know, while it, it hurts that person, it, there are other repercussions that may be in that positive. And like right. you said, there are other opportunities for them to find work elsewhere. It may involve moving. Yeah. You have to have that context, that long-term view of saying, this is not the end. And this could actually be beneficial, if not for me, then for my children or my children's children down the road. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's correct. And, um, you know, I wanted to make sure to plug a, a piece that Erica Jednak at Stand Together, uh, formerly AFP, New, Jer New Jersey uh, State Director. She and I co-authored a piece that was in Scientific American on automation and fears around automation. So maybe we can put that in the show notes too. Definitely. Uh, kind of outlining our community's perspective on that very important topic. And two, you know, I, you, you hit on, 
you know, the role of like intermediary institutions, and that often comes up in uh, the role of technology and society and cultural fears about technology. Uh, people talk about social media apps and services as the kind of the source of and the reason for the rot and say the there's no more, you know, fewer people are in Rotary Club because we're all on Instagram and fighting on Twitter. And again, context is extremely important here because we need to be careful, like, what are we comparing? Like, what is the ideal we have in mind when we're talking about uh, where these institutions went or what we want them to be? And even the role of government, you know, what what was government doing uh, during that ideal time or what should it be doing? And I think, you know, a common example I mean, so this is just, it's often brought up and I think it's important to realize that, um, you know, not everything was as perfect as we think it was. You know, the good old days were never a thing. People have been talking about the good old days for a hundred years uh, <laughs> and it's this sort of, you can never quite pin it down. Um, and it was always uh, about 50 years ago uh, and it's a moving target. Um, so we need to be careful about what it is we're comparing the current pain point against. And uh, I, I think you're right though that, um, when we're looking to government as the the solution to whatever the problems we're facing, um, that can certainly suck the oxygen out of the room and even probably like take away a lot of the energy to be involved in intermediary institutions. We've talked about openness and self-actualization a bit, but what about openness that that is addressed in our in our tech and innovation policies? Well, I like how it says here in openness. Um, you know, it fuels progress throughout society. Um, that's certainly the case when you have open exchange of ideas, whether it's, um, you know, so you have, I think of openness as the ability to share ideas and also openness to receive new ones. And, you know, here, especially is where I see tech and innovation overlapping with the free speech and toleration priority initiative and the immigration priority initiative. Um, again, going back to Art Diamond in his book, he's he talked about, you know, cultures that have openness to immigrants are often more open to technological innovation because we have people coming in with new ideas, maybe a different cultural practices. Um, and those things are closely correlated. And if we have, you know, greater uh, levels of toleration to new ideas and we feel less threatened by them, we don't, you know, put up the blast shields when we hear someone talk about something, an idea we disagree with, but instead can engage with them on that idea um, that has, you know, direct, I think, direct effect and correlation with uh, progress and tech and innovation issues. Um, so, you know, and I think throughout history, uh, the more technology we have, the more openness we've had, you know, like going back to the printing press as an example, radio, we can, you know, switch gears to the radio. Um, when I, when, you know, people had the opportunity to broadcast to mass audiences, uh, we saw a greater exchange of ideas. Um, that was certainly a much more open communication platform than pre-radio, when the only way to communicate in a mass way was to travel around. You think of like the Great Awakening in, in America with these itinerant preachers. Uh, they had to spend all their days traveling and speaking to vast crowds. And you know there was a movement built around that method, but it was far more costly. And now with the internet, everyone has <laughs> a radio platform essentially. Some people view that as a bad thing. And we certainly have seen some negative things like the New Zealand Christchurch shooter who live streamed uh, the murder of innocent people. And that's something that we need to reckon with. But at the, the same time, I think it's a much better world on net where anyone has the opportunity to broadcast their ideas. And this, 
minority voices aren't suppressed because there's only three main news channels and major newspapers that are controlling the narrative and access to information. So it sounds like you're saying that you prefer to deal with the tragedies associated with too much freedom than those associated with too little. Yeah, I would be. And, you know, it's it's again, it goes back to like, let's acknowledge the tragedy. It's not so it's not something to brush off. Um, and that was an evil act and an evil, I mean, an evil way to use a technology, mm -hmm. I think. And we should speak out against that. Um, you know, but on net, this has been something that's been much, it's improved human life. So I think let's continue to pursue the principles um, and framework that get us more openness uh, along these lines. I think when you look at, at self-actualization, we could probably spend hours, it's not, you know, weeks yeah. worth of time yeah. talking about all yeah. the different ways that tech and innovation contribute to self-actualization. Correct. Just in, in specifically, when you start talking about the way that technology improves people's lives, mm -hmm. that is one, one way. When you start looking at how technology increases productivity, mm -hmm. productivity is tied to, to wages. Wages is tied to standard of living. As standards of living increase, you start what we talked about earlier. You start moving past those more base needs. You've got a house, you've got food, you've got clothing. Yeah. Then you start moving up and up and up to where you're you're actually you have time to say pursue a hobby of painting or photography yeah. Yeah. and start getting into different things that make your life as good as it could be. Yeah, tech and innovation has just a paramount place in self-actualization. It does, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, my mind's kind of blown up right now with all the examples. Uh, I think, so I have ancestors that settled in Ohio in 1820 and my family left in the 60s and 70s. Uh, my mom was born in Tiffin, Ohio, uh, but then moved around and I was born in California. But I think if I were born in Ohio, uh, you know, going to self-actualization, instead of looking at having a life as an 18 year old, we're like, where do I want to go to school? What do I, what jobs do I want to pursue? It would have been, no, I'm probably going to end school at eighth grade. And I'm going to be a farmer because that's what my ancestors were doing. And maybe that's, maybe I'd enjoy it. You know, I'm there. I think, uh, human life is malleable enough and creative enough and rich enough where even if I'm not, you know, self-actualized being a farmer, I can find ways to be grateful for it in the day to day, but how much richer and different my life is than my ancestor in 1820. I think of that aspect. I think of even, even in my own life, uh, the other day I changed the, the light bulb on the, our Jeep, you know, our headlights were out. I've never changed headlights on a Jeep before, but because of YouTube, I was able to, uh, well, because of the internet, I looked up, all right, what light bulbs do I need? I didn't even have to, you know, leave my chair. And then I uh, went to AutoZone, figured out the bulbs. Then there were about three YouTube videos, different explanations, different versions of how to do it on the very make and model of the Jeep we have. And I was able to do it within, I think it took like 45 minutes, something I'd never done before. You know, before, you know, 30 years ago, maybe I could have gone to the library, gotten the book or whatever, but that's a, we call it, you know, a transaction cost. That's a higher transaction cost than standing out on my driveway with my smartphone, uh, watching someone else do the procedure I'm trying to do. And I felt better because I was, I learned a new thing. I felt accomplished. I. Uh, had that those feelings I think that come about because of self-actualization and the other point I really want to hit on too that's also in our vision you know we're about breaking barriers as a community internal and external I think a lot of these cultural fears and they over this a lot of these cultural fears have to do with internal barriers you know fear is an internal barrier am I afraid of what 
robots are going to do or about what social media is doing to society. Um, and I think this goes back to self-actualization. When we're living a life from that's based in hope and optimism with you know realistic perspective on what's going around in the world instead of fear and pessimism and kind of this, I, I call it like a pinhole view of, of technology that, you know, that is, I'm not aware of like how humanity has adapted and adopted new technologies in the past. Um, that can be an internal barrier that just, as I was saying before, can lead people to say, oh, I don't want to take a job in whatever tech company because they're, you know, invading our privacy or whatever the concern might be. Um, you know, all this to say, people are free to make those choices, but I don't, I often, I, I often, I think those choices are often coming from a misinformed physician that's kind of like pinhole perspective. And I think that can get to, can develop an internal barrier and then can prevent further self-actualization. There, there are countless examples of how people who were dirt floor poor have risen up out of that through the application yeah. of, of ideas in a, in a free society yeah. using technology to not only improve their lives, but the lives of those around them. And yes. these cultural fears tend to come from what you, what I like that, that pinhole view. We're going to look at one small yeah. part of an entire whole and, and call the whole what we see here. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to name one example there to kind of illustrate that idea, uh, there's a common cultural fear line that, you know, Twitter is making us more divisive. Social media is making society more divisive. So we can't have conversations with each other anymore. When we look at history, there in uh, mid 1800s, there was common to hold indignation meetings. So there, uh, this great book called uh, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, the history of reactions to technology from a telegram to Twitter. And it's the history of emotions. So I was talking about earlier about distraction and loneliness. Well, here we have anger as an issue set. So in the 1800s, people had indignation meetings. They gathered in person. Um, they have in this book, they have a, an image of, I think it was in Ohio, monopolies. Let's all get together and just like rage against monopolies. So it's like a, a literal like two minute hate from uh, 1984. I, I think longer than uh, two minutes, you know, it's, it's a long time. I don't know the two minute hate service product it's like yeah people would gather and spend you know a chunk of time railing against whatever it is that they wanted to rail against so that they gave two examples you know monopolies and one was uh abraham lincoln's assassination you know people gathered there was this picture you know, hundreds of people gathered together to just mourn together and then also be angry together and this, so this is just to me that's like when people say, oh, Twitter has made us more divisive, that's a pinhole perspective. No, let's widen the aperture. Oh, and like we can see throughout human history, people have just been angry about political things or having different ideas. It's just part of the human condition. And with Twitter, it's more visible. And I think that can contribute to this sense that, oh, we've, we're more angry as a society uh, because I see, you know, all these angry replies to my tweet or maybe my political hero's tweet or whatever the case may be. Just knowing about indignation meetings, those were a common thing in uh, the United States. Well, maybe it's time they come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, get you know, air, air your grievances uh, together. I think there's something therapeutic about that. And then the feats of strength. But now we're getting into Seinfeld, and we don't need to. <laughs> what have we? Uh, what have we not talked about that we need to talk about? I, I was thinking um, earlier when you were talking about indignation meetings, not even recognizing that 
that they probably had the time to go to those meetings because of some previous technology that someone else was upset about. Right, right, so right, now, right. now their standard of living is to where the, they point, yeah, I've got a couple hours. I think I'll go yeah. shake my fist at this cloud, ape since the style. And, uh, <laughs> or maybe they're without a job that, you know, uh, technology enabled. Um, you know, when you're, when you're unemployed, you have a little more time. I think, you know, one thing we haven't discussed is uh, cultural fears can often end up in calls for government regulation and laws to step in. You know, you mentioned Senator Hawley's work, you know, we don't want to pick on him exclusively, but, you know, throughout uh, congressional history, you can think of the reaction to Mortal Kombat. Uh, when was that? In the late, mid, late 90s? It was around 1993 because it was on the USS Abraham Lincoln when I was stationed there. In there you go. Wow. 90, so, you know, there we had congressional hearings about Mortal Kombat and the dangers to youth. I think if those people, you know, time traveled, if we brought back the current iteration of Mortal Kombat, they would have, just, they would have lost their mind. Just a complete meltdown. I know. The, the graphical improvement and just now, it, it, I found it interesting, you know, the, the new Mortal Kombat got zero hearings as far as I, I know. And I've been tracking Congress for the past seven years, you know, longer than that. It's been uh, eight years. So... Anyway, all this to say is uh, fears can manifest in this, you know, government, hey, save us. And you were talking about the role of institutions. Government becomes the default solution giver. When I have a fear about uh, an app, you know, an addictiveness of apps, I can say, hey, government, you need to step in and do a thing and save us from this. And that's so it can come from, I think, a few things. It can come from, you know, this misinformation, uh, maybe a distorted sense of like what the ideal might look like or if we've you know actually lived in a certain ideal before you know this longing for the good old days um, but then i think it can also come from just ignorance of solutions that are out there like having an honest discussion about uh, as a you know a family unit as an starting with an individual you know doing some self-reflection some introspection uh, why am i maybe spending a hundred dollars on clash of clans or spending uh, you know 15 hours uh, a day on facebook or instagram or something why am I doing those things? And then you can kind of zoom out a little bit. Okay, as a family, you know, not everyone has a, there's no like typical, you know, family boilerplate for what a family looks like, but as a uh, family unit, having a discussion for the role of certain technologies as a family, that's a discussion you can have. And then there, you know, zoom out, there are organizations like the Family Online Safety Institute, whose whole mission is to provide tools to parents and grandparents and how to equip their children for life in the digital world. They have a great set of videos on good digital parenting. If you go to FOSI.org, you can look up those videos on uh, the seven steps to good digital parenting. And so there's just an awareness of like, there are other solutions out there and we wanna, you know, we're, we're going through this kind of strategy investigation as a team on this cultural set of issues and culture and technology, um, looking at, you know, where we can make the most impact. But we've already, you know, we've, we've partnered with organizations like FOSI because they're offering this bottom up solution so people can see, oh, you know, here's a way to get at the, the fears I do have, a set of tools that is more effective, frankly, than a top-down, you know, congressional bill about, you know, regulating time on social media apps, for instance. And, you know, I, I want to plug here a, a good author, uh, Nir Eyal. Nir, N-I-R is his first name. Uh, he wrote a book that came out this year called Indistractable. Uh, and I love his line in the introduction where he says, you are more powerful than any big tech company. And he encourages people to do that individual level of self-introspection and says, You're, you know, addiction is a way too strong a word to use for uh, social media apps. And instead, 
you know, you might have a problem, but do some reflection. Like, how do you want this technology to be in your life? What role do you want it to have? And I think that is an underutilized and underaddressed side of the coin when we're having these top these discussions about uh, the role of technology in our own lives and as a culture and society. And it can too easily go to that control view of we need government to step in. So that's another reason uh, these cultural discussions are important to our priority initiative. Thank you once again to Taylor Barkley for taking the time to talk to us about technophobia. And if you have any questions about technology and innovation or there's more you want to hear about regarding this priority, please let me know. Send an email to toppriority at afphq.org. Until next time, thanks for listening and please tell a friend.